even just a lot of people that I know socially in my group who've done really well, like, you know, $50 million plus exit, something like that. A lot of them are divorced or didn't get married, like the Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos examples. Like I would not consider myself having outsized successes in those, especially not in those senses. I mean, you could see by running Opgen, like I was totally, I love the lifestyle businesses. I love the idea of cash flow. And I've never been interested in running startup ever. I don't find it interesting for me to work on one idea for five to 10 years, pay myself nothing for a couple of years, then go to a modest salary and then have a big exit. You know, I think the mindset I have is a lot different than that. And I think for sure, like I'll be up from never going to be a billionaire. Like I just don't think I have anything like that in me, but I do think I can get to like 10, 20, $30 million doing this without having to sacrifice like your personal life and what, what you want to do. This week, I'm sharing part of my conversation with Brandon Pindulik. Now, Brandon is the president of Spacebar Ventures, which is a digital business incubator that Brandon uses to buy, build, and scale internet businesses. And he was previously the founder of Opgen Media. Now, in this part, you're going to hear Brandon and I talking about the role of trust in hiring general managers and CEOs of portfolio companies. We talk about some of the nuances of building a holding company and how Brandon was able to adapt to having to manage both business and personal finances after experiencing a big win. So obviously, once you come into a lot of money, it creates a lot of changes in your life. Then we talk about some of the mistakes that Brandon has seen and experienced running businesses across the board from hiring to making certain decisions to buying to selling to some of the investments that he's made in some of the portfolio companies so you're going to learn a lot from his experiences there and then finally we talked about how to surround yourself with successful people and build a network a circle of people around you that can boost you to further success so you can get the full show notes, the transcript, and read my newsletter at theknowledge.io. And you can find Brandon online on Twitter at bpindulic and on his website spacebarventures.com. So if you love this episode, please do share it with a friend. And don't forget to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts because it helps us tremendously to find other listeners just like you. Do you have any process of reviewing either the decisions that you make personally as the person running this entire operation or some of the more granular decisions that happen within the businesses that you operate? Because I think part of the reason I ask is something I was thinking about recently is just this idea of the hot hand fallacy. And I think you've escaped this partly because you've had some some mistakes early on or some things that didn't pan out exactly the way that you wanted early on, which is actually a really good thing because it helps you to avoid, you know, this idea that, okay, so for example, you have a basketball player that has made five shots in a row, he's likely to shoot a sixth because he's got a hot hand, right? That is functionally extremely different from someone flips a coin five times in a row and they think they've got a hot hand, they're excited. And that's what makes people double down, right? On their next go, because you've built this track record of, hey, I, I flipped this coin four times. I got heads every time I, I made the right call. I'm going to do it one more time. I'm going to double down. And that is suddenly what blows people up sometimes. And sometimes when you have consecutive successes or you don't necessarily get upfront failures or upfront feedback from the decisions that you make, it makes it hard to, to quantify the quality of the decision that you're making. Like, was this a good decision or was it not? Because a lot of the time people just base it on the outcome, right? So if it ended up okay, that means it was a good decision. If it ended up badly, that means it was a bad decision. And it's hard to get more granular feedback beyond that. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I definitely 
to use your basketball analogy, did a heat check and didn't work right pretty much right away. So I think <laughs> I think I learned that quickly, very quickly, that it's a lot more involved because OpGen was such a success right out of the gate that it's good to have those failures early on. I think we're learning this right now. So I think I don't have a great answer on how it's going to exactly work out. But the example I gave with the you know kind of incubating a business and doing the market research ahead of time and testing the waters and building the partnerships ahead of time is what is ultimately needed. So I think there's potentially up to six months of work ahead of time to vet these ideas and potentially vet these operators, which I'm kind of doing naturally as well. Like you just kind of meet people now that I'm sort of in the market doing this. People come deal with ideas or you meet them. So I think that stuff's really important. And if you can kind of do many tests along the way. Another example actually is not on the incubation or acquisition side, but I hired an operating partner. His name's George, based in Milwaukee. And I hired him in full-time October of this year. So October 1st was his second, whatever was his first date. But we had worked together part-time for probably three or four months up until that point. And that was a great way to test it. I had a you know a hunch that he would work out. We worked together really well and it did work out. And we had certain goals that we hit. He was driving part of the process. I was driving part of the process. The day after I brought him on part-time, I went to Ireland on a, for a family trip. So I was like totally checked out for two weeks. And he ran things really well. So that was probably not the best way to onboard somebody, but it was a good, like, just test it and see if it works. That to me, I think is important on how to do that stuff. Because it's like, it, there's, you know, you're never going to get this right 100% of the time. But doing that is a lot. I think we've already seen it, but I think we'll definitely improve our success rate quite a bit from where I was doing it before, which was just, hey, met this person. They sound cool. They got an idea. Let's run with it. Yeah. Okay. So going right off the back of that, what function does trust play? I know that I think you've mentioned you found some partners on operators online on Twitter and perhaps friends of friends or through various spaces. What function or what role does trust play in these decisions, both in terms of bringing someone on, but then also in delegating and allowing them to run a business? So every hundred percent, everything. And I'm still like, sometimes I'll probably jump in things where I shouldn't, but if you cannot trust someone 100% or allow them to go a week or two weeks without any intervention, then you don't have the right person, especially on the operations side of things. So it, it means everything. Now, we'll track KPIs, both leading metrics and certain sales goals and things like that. And we do review them weekly. I imagine we're going to get to a point where we do it monthly. But that kind of you know constant checking and just sort of measuring and helping each other along the way is critical. I think you hit the nail on the head. The trust part is without it. I just don't think we can do what we do. So in building space for our ventures, I think, you know, we talked earlier about how there's a lot of people that talk about building personal holding companies and different types of things like that. And you hear people say, oh, we're going to be the Berkshire Hathaway of this or Berkshire Hathaway of that. I was wondering what your strategy is overall, not just for the business, I guess, but personally in your ambitions or aspirations, like what exactly are you trying to build? How do you think this develops and, and where do you want it to go? I think, you know, there's probably two paradigms that you think of. One is, okay, people that look for big wins, right? You mentioned looking for bigger businesses to acquire things that are already at a further, more advanced stage. You think of a lot of people that maybe just invest in companies that do angel investments and actually what they want is a 10x, 100x return. They are trying to find the business that they can get in early on that suddenly is going to be a rocket ship and it's going to go to the moon. And then on the other side, maybe you have maybe a bit more of a Warren Buffett type approach where it's like slow accumulation. You buy a business, you grow it over time. 
something that you know, or you have like a strong thesis behind the decisions that you make, that you're going to hold things perhaps forever. And that is going to be, you know, a long-term decision. So the way I think about it is just from a compounding standpoint, I don't, I, I mean, I've done angel investing and some VC investing and things like that. It's just not really my interest. I actually haven't done any of that at all this year, not because the markets are bad. I just don't have the interest in it, but it's from a compounding standpoint of a collection of small businesses. I don't take the hold forever approach. And I also don't take the, I need to sell this in a certain period of time, PE approach. It's kind of more of like, I think John Malone said it, like everything's got a price at some point. Like I'm willing to deal with somebody and, and make a sale. Or I'm willing to hold, but it's a compounding approach. If we can buy a business at sub 3X earnings or a good business at 4X, you know, whatever, and we can grow it and there's multiple expansion in there and things like that. I think it's a great way to live your life and, and make a good bit of money. And I am absolutely focused on autonomy. So I think that's really important for me. So that's why, you know, never say never, but I don't see myself, especially with my background. So I don't see myself raising a fund. I'll syndicate a deal and I'll do deals with debt. I don't think I'm going to take a fund approach. So I like the holding company model. I think that I'm going to get, and this is a big part of what we're getting into in the new year, doing it in a much more structured way. So the way we're dealing it now is two incubations and two acquisitions. I could obviously switch a little bit from there, but everything rolls up into that million dollar a year cash flow target, which is after debt, after profit sharing, after reinvestment. So that would be like true cash flow out money out of the businesses. If there's something that I don't think will get us at least 10% there in one move, I just don't think I would do that. So that's kind of, I say kind of the North Star metric, because if we sell a business, and it technically puts us down from a cash flow standpoint, but you get what I'm saying. So. Yeah. Okay. Maybe a different version of that question is like, what does success look like for you, both for the business and also personally? Well, I think it's, I like the idea of de-risking entrepreneurship for others. I think it's people who start companies take it for granted that, you know, they could just start a company. So for me, luck was on my side. I was able to work remotely. I mean, my job was remote in 2014. So I was working remotely. I could start on the side and I had some niche skill set that I was able to monetize on. And I was working in tech where there's, you know, the whole from, from the time I started up until like, even now, I mean, people say it's a recession. It's really not that bad. <laughs> out there in tech. So we've been riding a wave and I think that's important. So de-risking entrepreneurship from the side of incubating a company with somebody and taking care of their living expenses and risk, but sharing in the upside with them is important and fun for me. And I, and I think it's very economical. And then same deal with buying a business. You can buy a business, you know, I'm not scared to put in money or PG debt uh, and then have someone run that business. And then now all of a sudden they can put themselves in a different position. So that's, a, that's very important to me. And then the autonomy piece of it. But I'm also money motivated too. So it's like, how do we make sure that this is cash flowing at an above average rate and we're growing at an above average rate and then it could turn into something big? But I don't want to do that at the expense of raising a fund. And then now all of a sudden I have a bunch of LPs and compliance, additional compliance things that I'm dealing with that I otherwise wouldn't have. So as long as those two things remain constant, then we're going to be in a good spot. And that's my main goal. Sure. And that makes sense. So when you think about the difference between what you're doing now, running and owning this holding company, and when you were running just one business, does this feel like the thing or does this feel like the thing you get to do after doing the thing, right? Like if you had to start again, would you try and speed run to get to this point where you could do something similar to what you're doing now? Or would you still focus on trying to get the initial big win? 
No, 100% that one. I would, I'd focus on the big win first. And I wouldn't even say mine was like a massive win. It was more of like a get comfortable than, than go for something bigger. I don't see how you can – I definitely would not have been able to do this at 22 when I was starting off Gen or 21 because you need the money and you need the experience to do it. So I don't see how that's, that would make sense. And you could argue that I'm doing it too soon now. Like maybe I could have done another business, you know, got it to five or 10 times larger than I got to Opgen and then did something. But I did this really just, just out of a desire to do it. If someone told me make the most amount of money you possibly can in three years, I would start a single company, not a holding company. I do think overall, based on my skill set and personality and what I know for myself, I'll make more money in the holding company model eventually. Well, I'll definitely have more fun doing it. The single company thing, I think I'm just not a good manager. So I can get us to a certain point and I would have to replace myself. And then that just gets you back at the same point. Then I would just do that again and again. In 10, 15 years time, I'll have three or four businesses with different managers. So I think I was just realistic about what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. So, I mean, you mentioned it's not really a big win. How how much did you end up with ballpark roughly from from the sale of Obgen? Well, so I had I had the sale, but it also it cash flowed really well. So I was I paid myself a salary, and then it would cash flow probably four or five hundred k a year after expenses. And then when I sold it, I didn't get a lump sum. Well, I did get a lump sum, but I didn't get all of the money up front. I had an earn out, but overall, probably just from the sale, maybe one one two or one point three million. And then you know, for a I don't know. I'd have to look back at some of the numbers from a three or four year period. I had that cash flow there. And then I was investing along the way. So I've invested the pretty much the bet. I would actually say too much. I think people talk about investing as a good thing. I think I invested too much of my money because I would I would love to have some of that e-liquid <laughs> or stuff that's a liquid now back in my portfolio to start things or buy things. But it, it adds up like over time. I didn't need to make a salary right away. And then I also, I'm still, time of this recording, what is it, November 2023, I'm still getting an earnout check from that business. So I get my, like my final earnout check on, I think it's like April of 2024. So I have another like, I don't know, five, six months, whatever it is to get that. And then there's a smaller one after that. But by then, you know, these businesses already are, are cash flowing pretty decently well. So that allowed me to not take any money at all out of the businesses we started this year. I mean, I've taken money out of Planet Compliance, but that's pretty much it. And then I can put it back in. And that was a that was definitely a cheat code. So I don't know if that answers your question directly, but the other thing is like I'm pretty pro seller financing and earnout for some of those reasons. So you don't get the lump sum right away and just stick it in whatever. Because I sold this thing in, I sold that in 2021. So you can imagine what I would have been investing in, you know, crypto and startups and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think you've also partly answered, you know, there's that famous question of, you know, would you rather have X amount upfront or X amount over time? And it's interesting that, I mean, first of all, it seems like you're already pretty disciplined. If you were investing in mortgage companies back in 08 and you've over-invested now, it seems like you already had some discipline to invest, but maybe there's a difference between if you'd gotten all of it as a big lump sum versus being able to spread it over time. Yeah, no, I was definitely conservative, even running Opgen to a fault. We probably, you know, we would keep like whatever, six or 12 months expenses in the bank at any one point, which is people say to do that. And it's not bad advice. It's just not great advice for growth. So I didn't really, you know, spend a crazy amount on that side. And then even then, this is sort of an aside. We didn't talk about it, but I talked a little bit about the consulting thing I did. So I had a business where that was no expenses. So that was just my time. So I did that consulting for a while, which was great because again, that was more capital I was able to save up and things. 
But even to this day, I took on a couple of small consulting deals in 2022 because Spacebar Ventures really wasn't anything. So just kind of trying to figure out what I would make it into. But I did a deal with this family office called Pardone. So in this month, I did a deal where in addition to running Spacebar Ventures, so I have this other thing going on now where we built a website and a M&A vehicle called Subscribed. So it's subscribed.net. And we're literally just going out and looking to buy digital media companies. So the deal I structured with them is I get paid a, a monthly consulting fee, and then we're going to use their capital. I'm going to invest in some of the deals, and then you know we're going to do an SPV as well, and then we'll buy these media businesses, and then I get a percentage of the profits, either distribution or when we sell. So I did that as another way to further, A, keep myself busy to not do something dumb, and then B, get some cash out to where, again, like I, I just didn't have to take money out of these businesses while they're, you know, in their infancy in the first 12 months. So that's exciting. That's great. I mean, those types of deals are consulting is like really tough to get the right client, but like, you know, Pardone and companies they own called Optimism, and that's like 101. I mean, they're, they're great to work with. So. Are there any bad decisions you've made with money? I feel like most of the ones so far, uh, yes. apart from the one or two investments that didn't work out, they're a bit like those interview questions where they ask, well, what's your weakness? And you say, oh, I work too hard. I invest too much. <laughs> no, I got, I'll pull them up. I keep a list. So I invested in Bolt. Do you remember that company? It was like- uh... Yes. Oh, this is something I wanted to ask you about, actually. <laughs> but yeah, tell, tell me about it. Yeah, I don't even know what to tell you about. I invested in Bolt. That's a dog of a company. I invested in- I've invested in companies. There's one I'm looking here. It's called Hermes Robotics. I couldn't tell you what this company did. I don't know why or when I invested in it, but I looked back actually recently. So I'm like, all right, let me look through. Because a lot of these deals are either done on Carta or AngelList. It's like a crypto staking company. But when I invested in it initially, they were doing like autonomous train driving or something. I have no idea. So, I mean, yeah, I know I got some serious losers in the portfolio from 2020 to 2021. Now there are some good ones, like where I knew the company or where I stayed in my lane of enterprise B2B software at the seed to A area. Like, I mean, you're still going to have more failures than not, but I, I can figure that out. Anything outside of that was terrible. I think every stock I've ever picked went down and I'm not kidding. It's not a joke. I don't think I've ever made money off of a stock. So that's why I was like, all right, I'm only going to invest in small businesses and then B2B enterprise software and everything else. I don't care about, you know, I, I mean, I have index funds. It's like one of my good friends is my financial advisor. So I give him money to do that. But other than that, I am totally out on investing in anything outside of these areas. Hey, we'll get back to the episode in just one moment, but I wanted to tell you very quickly about my newsletter. I started sharing everything I was learning online and a few thousand people came along for the ride. I send three regular emails. Brainwave fortnightly on a Tuesday, which is about the intersection between technology, philosophy and psychology. Then every week on a Thursday, I send revelations and that's about creativity and productivity. And then finally, every other weekend, I send Wayfinder, and that's about decision-making. So people in the audience actually send me really tough problems that they're working through, and I help to deconstruct them using mental models and decision-making frameworks. So if you'd like to subscribe, you can join me and over 20,000 incredibly driven people at theknowledge.io. Okay, back to the episode. Okay, fair. I guess in that case, maybe it's a good thing that you didn't get all the money up front, right? No, it's a great thing. I didn't get the money up front. And I did have some crypto. I'm not really into that stuff, but I don't think I definitely missed the point to sell, but I don't think I did terrible on that one, but relative, right? You could have had some bad losers. So those are mistakes. Hiring, I'm pretty bad at hiring. I've gotten everyone that I've worked with currently 
and employees that I had an option and stuff. I mean, I had some like absolute home runs, but if you look at my spectrum, it's like either someone worked out amazingly well or just like, I had one guy who just like stopped showing up to work for a month. And I was like, I don't, do I fire him? What do I do? So <laughs> I've had some really bad hires as well that just didn't work out because I'm too trusting in the beginning. Like I take everything at face value. I'm just like, all right, this person's great. They look like they work hard. They're smart. I like them. Let's just hire. I've never done a reference check, all of that stuff. So I'm trying to build this into my process now where I'm like, not everything is going to work out. Here are some ways that I can do stuff that, you know, will at least save me like just low hanging fruit will just save me some headaches down the line. So. Yeah. I mean, okay. Well, tell me more about that in terms of like lesson learned or what you're changing as a result. So you mentioned hiring as an example, like, is there anything that you now know that you could have done differently in terms of hiring aside from just like reference checks, or maybe that's part of it. And then maybe from some of those other mistakes as well. Well, I'm, I'm still trying to figure that one out. So on the hiring side, it's always gonna be difficult for a, a co-founder operator. So I think that's, you know, that there's a lot of sort of inherent trust that has to be built up initially. So if they come from your network or you organically meet them and you can kind of build things over time, that's great. I'm very, I mean, I've hired a lot of people on contract work. So I love to do that before bringing someone in full time. In fact, probably if I look at all of the hires that have worked out, I think all of them actually started that way. When you have that to your advantage, you can do that well. And then the way to do that is really simply if you have someone that's working remote or someone who, who has the ability to do like a night or weekend or something like that, just pay them above, significantly above market rate for whatever project they're doing to make it fair. It'll work out great. If not, no harm, no foul. So that's an important one, I suppose. I mean, I haven't worked with recruiters or anything like that, but I suppose that's a decent way to do it. I mean, those are, those are some of the, I think, just like important things. If you can kind of test the relationship first, then... That's always ideal. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Rick Guerin? I don't think so. Okay. It just reminded me of what you were saying. So he was actually, speaking of co-founders, he was effectively like the third partner of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, except almost no one's heard of him now because, I mean, the irony is he was a great stock picker. Like he was actually, it's not like he was bad. He was great. That's why he worked with Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger early on but he used leverage. And so he ended up getting margin called. And I think this goes to what Charlie Munger talks about often, which is this idea of avoiding unforced errors, like not trying to be smart, but just avoiding being dumb. And I think, you know, it goes to what you were saying in terms of some of the decisions you make or some of the mistakes that you make. A lot of it can just be about getting the simple stuff right and avoiding some of these other mistakes, right? Like not just jumping on the latest hot trend, not just investing in the latest hot company, but actually taking a step back and thinking about things slightly longer term as well. I think that's spot on. I think I've heard them say he wanted to get rich quickly and they wanted to get rich slowly. And I think those are important distinctions there from that. Plus another thing too, from, I think it was Charlie Munger who said this, but somebody had asked him at one point, how does he do the deal? So they'll they'll go in, they'll buy a business and they'll keep, you know, their whole thing is the day after the deal closes, they want the business to run as if they never acquired them, right? They like to keep management intact and all of that. So they've asked him about how he's done deals and how he thinks about incentives and things like that for management. Uh, and someone who's, you know, the king of doing this even said that it's different on a deal by deal basis. So that's why when I think through hiring or deal structuring for a co-founder or an operator or something, I think there's almost no perfect way to do it where it's one size fits all. I think ultimately you just have to assess the situation and, and see what makes sense in that, in that area. Yeah. 
So I know that you've never had like one incredible windfall, at least relative to the fact that you've always been able to pay yourself relatively well, but I'm still interested in, are there any constraints that you found just from being able to make like a pretty decent income? And the best example I can think of this being, not that you're married and I don't think you have been previously, but one that has been on my mind has just been this idea of like the the cost of being king. And I've seen some people talking about it, but I've been writing about it just for a little while. And you just think of this idea that, okay, in fact, some of the very people that we were talking about, Warren Buffett, you think of some of the richest people in the world. I think almost every single one of them, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, all of these people, what do they all have in common? It's divorce, right? So (laughs) it's almost like- Yeah, like there is an inherent cost of becoming incredibly successful, incredibly wealthy. And I was trying to think of, okay, like, why does that happen? Why is that the case? Nobody goes out to be successful thinking, oh, yeah, this is going to blow up my life and my family and everything that I think that I love. And also simultaneously, nobody gets married hoping that they'll get divorced. And I think maybe there's three factors that I have in my mind. Like one is that some of these things, so, and and you can expand this beyond marriage, obviously for the purposes of this conversation, but like one of them is maybe these things are just negative externalities, right? So this is just the cost of doing business. You make a lot of money, you have a lot of great success and a lot of just negative stuff happens uh, as a side effect. The other is maybe it's just a self-selecting cohort, right? So the type of person that is likely to be extremely successful in business, maybe they're very disagreeable. Maybe they drive a hard bargain. Like they have some traits that also might make them difficult to maintain friends or difficult to maintain a partner, things like that. And then the third type is perhaps just like poison fruit. Like maybe there is something inherent in the act of becoming extremely successful that either changes you as a person or changes the other people around you in a way that, you know, like you are now different as a result of having that success and the people around you are also different as a result of you having that success. I wonder if any of those ideas resonate with you and the journey that you've had and yeah, just like how that lands for you. Yeah. I mean, I, it's a pattern I've recognized, right? So I, um, I, even just a lot of people that I know socially in my group who've done really well, um, when I mean really well, you know, $50 million plus exit, something like that. A lot of them are divorced or didn't get married or something like that. So I have a girlfriend, we live together and we have two dogs. And it's something we've talked about too, because it's like, we're both career oriented people. And we just like have these conversations to where, you know, it'll work. And obviously the plan is to get married and things like that. But I notice it, you just see it either in like the examples you gave, like the Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos examples, down to people I just kind of know personally that's, you know, have done well, but aren't in the media. So I think that's like, I would not consider myself having outsized successes in those, especially not in those senses. So I think that's actually probably something that's held me back. I do like to work. And if if it were up to me, I'd work pretty much most of the day. But at the same time, like, I mean, you could see by running Opgen, like I was totally, I, I, like, I love the lifestyle businesses. I love the idea of cash flow, And I've never, I mean, I've never been interested in running startup ever. It's just not, I don't find it interesting for me to work on one idea for five to 10 years, pay myself nothing for a couple of years, then go to a modest salary and then have a big exit. And the irony is that's kind of like literally what I'm doing with Spacebar Ventures, but I see the cash flow come in and then I just don't distribute it to myself and I can put it to, to work to do stuff. So that resonates a lot more with me than, oh, our MAUs are going up or our ARRs up, but we're, our burn is 100K a month. And, you know, I got to raise my next round, next round and at any point that can just kind of implode on you. You know, I, I think the mindset I have is, is a lot different than that. And I think for sure, like I'll be up from never going to be a billionaire. Like I just don't think I have anything like that in me, but I do think I can get to like 
10, 20, $30 million doing this without having to sacrifice like your personal life and what, what you want to do. Now that does come at the expense. Like there are times where you gotta like miss something or whatnot. But to be honest, like I kind of think that narrative is overplayed a little bit in small business too, because I work remotely and because I've had the benefit of being in B2B. Like our clients are working nine to five, generally speaking, Monday through Friday. So if I need to get something done on the weekend, which happens a lot, I can kind of get it done on my own time. Where if you're in e-commerce, if you're in hospitality, something like that, you usually don't have those luxuries built into your business. So I do think that's helpful too. And then now, obviously, as you're building a team, I view teams as leverage. So you have people that are working with you. The ideas can get bigger. You can do more. Like just two weeks ago, we have a small team and we had two people out. One was sick. One was on vacation. So then I'm like jumping in and doing the work and that's fine. But, you know, I got to like catch myself up up to speed on like what they're doing, how we're doing that. And then that ends up kind of slowing you down a little bit further. So there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think perhaps one of the last questions that I would ask very much on the track of what we were just mentioning. So first of all, you just mentioned you have friends that are doing similarly well or even better. You know, they're running great businesses. They've sold great businesses. And we've talked a bit in the past as well, I, I guess, about, you know, people in your network, et cetera. And I think this is, it's actually a really important point and perhaps an underrated one, right? About the people that you run with and the people that are around you and how that shapes and can either constrain or expand your idea of normal. And actually, I, I think I've written about this as well. I forget the name of the post, but just this idea that if you are driving at, okay, I'm going to use miles per hour just because I, oh yeah, you guys use miles per hour. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so here, like in a normal suburban area, the speed limits might be about 30 miles an hour, right? And if you are driving at 30 miles an hour in the suburbs, everything is fine. Everything is dandy. You get along with everyone. Everything is fine. If you start driving at 40 miles an hour in the suburbs in a 30 mile per hour zone, suddenly people are looking at you like a maniac. Like you are driving too fast. It's unsafe for children. Like what, what are you doing? You're a crazy person, right? But that same person driving at 40 miles an hour, if you went onto the motorway or a highway, everyone there is driving at 70 miles an hour. And suddenly you are now so slow that you're also going to kill people. Like you are a health hazard in the same way that you would have been a health hazard in a zone where everyone's driving at 30. Now you're a health hazard because you're driving too slow. And I think that is a very similar to the way that the friends that we have and the people that we keep around us can either like constrain or expand our idea of what normal is. And if you have people around you that are driving at a really high speed, that is just what you're used to. So I'm interested to know, like both early on from your early twenties, because I remember actually even that business you started when you were 15, that was a business you started with a friend, right? And even now, as you run this business, you have friends that are running 50 million plus businesses. So I'd love to know what you think the impact has been of the people that you've kept around you and how you think that has impacted your level of success as well. Yeah, totally. So I think that's, you know, even going further back, that's kind of like when people talk about the value of education and you kind of ask about my thoughts on college and whatnot. That's why parents will put their kid in private school if they can or something or whatever. They go to the, the school district with the good, whatever. I always went to public school and I did one year in college. So it was like different for me. But I think people do that for their, like to get around other people that are in that area and they try and like morph their children to think that way. I don't know. So I, I have a kind of a unique sense on it because all of my friends that run businesses, I mean, I think they all do better than I do, honestly. Like I kind of joke that I feel like I'm in like, um, I mean, baseball may not be as big in the UK, but I'm in like the minor leagues and they're, I know like I'm friends with the professionals, but like, I'm still kind of like, I'm good, but you know, not, not there. But at the same time, I see what they're doing and I can kind of like get inside, you know, what, what they got going on and we can trade and I've definitely benefited from that. 
but all of these people I've met just through like random stuff, like through work or I reached out to them or they reached out to me. It's, it's, it hasn't been like through one cohesive thing, like a school or, you know, growing up in the same area or whatnot. I've taken the approach of I'll invest in the people that I identify as, oh yeah, they got it. Like at the expense of whatever, this person has that thing. And that's, that's done well for me. And there's people that I'm friends with that haven't, you know, had that big exit or haven't started that company yet. But I know for a fact, they have the ability to have an outsized return on something and I'm just going to invest in whatever they're going to do. So that's it. And my whole thing is how do I make a bunch of cash flow to where I can do that and then invest in it and then, you know, not care if it fails, but if it does succeed, it'll be a pretty massive win. And I've done this before too. I mean, even the company I'm invested in, it's based in London. Actually, it's called Zyflow. I invested in them because the founders that founded Proof HQ and I saw Matt and Ant, what they did at Proof HQ. And I'm like, these guys are absolutely operating at a different level from what I've seen. So whatever the next thing is, like I just put money in and whatever. They weren't raising money for a while because they made money on the previous exit, but they finally went that route and I did that. And that's going to be a, you know, it's not going to like be a hundred X investment for me, but it's going to be a really good one when they eventually exit. So that's the approach I've taken where I can kind of like get that upside, but not necessarily having to do it at the expense of running that business and sacrificing everything else. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, maybe the last question I'll ask you is, is there anything that you have done in particular or that you would recommend to cultivate those kinds of friends? Because it seems like throughout your journey, you've always had friends like that. Yeah, it is kind of random. People have asked me that before. I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, I've always lived in cities. I've lived in like New York, Boston, Austin. So I'll go, I've met people just like going to random dinners or events. I've put on dinners and events, which is helpful. And that's been a good way. I've actually met a lot of people on Twitter, even though I've only kind of recently become active on Twitter. So that's a great, I mean, that's actually how we met. So that's a great way to do it. But I take calls and meetings with a lot of people. So in 2022, I think this is an interesting example. I set up this investment network called Panthera. And we would just look at alternative investments. We'd source them. We would do SPVs. I was initially going to make it a paid group and that people were paying for it. And I just refunded. Like, I, I don't want to do this full time anymore, but I would meet with professional investors and I'd meet with high net worth people or people just wanted to invest in things. And I made a lot of friends and interesting connections that way, but I didn't make a dime off of it. I did raise money for deals. So, you know, in theory, I can make money off the carry of those things. But that was like a very intentional way for me to build out a group of people that I thought were interesting. And then I would take probably 10 calls a day and then I'd go and meet people. I was just, you know, I'd, if I went to whatever city or country or whatever, I would just set up meetings and meet and we'd hang out and have fun. And like just kind of friendships became, you know, turned into that, that thing. Cause I'm really interested in like what people are doing. So I think it's cool. Like if someone's got a business they're running or an investment fund, a podcast, they're writing a book, whatever. I'm interested in like kind of like seeing how they're doing it and what they're doing. And then naturally, I think when you're good, I guess when you're naturally interested in what other people are doing, they kind of just, you just sort of become friends that way. Thank you so much for tuning in please do stay tuned for more don't forget to rate review and subscribe it really helps the podcast and follow me on twitter feel free to shoot me any thoughts see you next time